Hi, I'm Russ Kamarta, an independent filmmaker and actor in New York, and in between the chances I get to do my creative projects, I love to sit down and talk with other artists to see how it is they do what they do, how they take art and use their craft to reveal truth to an audience. So in this series of conversations, you'll meet some people you may recognize, some people you won't recognize, but they're all independent artists and we'll get in depth in a long form conversation to see how it is they do what they do. Welcome to Art Craft Truth. This time on the Art Craft Truth podcast, comedian, songwriter, Henry Phillips. With an over 25-year career in stand-up, film, and television, two feature films under his belt, Henry is a multi-talented, hysterical performer. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy this great conversation. Henry Phillips. Check, check. Hey, hey. Uh, Henry? Oh, there he you is, go. the highwayman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny uh, that you bring that up because we did... Uh, not, not to start off dark, but my my very elderly father uh, passed recently, and it, it wasn't unexpected. But uh, we did a little Zoom celebration of his life. But I didn't realize every time I put the camera off, you know, I was the one hosting it. They saw the highwayman picture. It's like, oh man, I should have put something a little more solemn there, you know. But awesome. What are you gonna do? Because it came on. I'm like, wait a minute. I, I was just watching that just two seconds ago. Right? Um, so yeah, I'm sorry I had to postpone that one week. Somebody uh, wiped out half the side of my car, so it was like a, oh, it was like a Henry Phillips song. It was, it was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been those yeah. Yep. I want to get into like how how you do your craft, which is, I don't even know if we can even understand how you guys do what you do. Where you most fascinating artists of all are comedians and musicians. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I love talking about that kind of stuff. So that sounds good. <laughs> Very cool. And um, and Vicky, who's my uh, my friend and, and producer, helping me out with some of these. You, we we saw your we saw uh, punching Henry. Um, I guess back in in the winter time, and it was like get get this guy. This guy's fantastic. And and you're you're one of those guys who you you, you know like. In other words, we we all we all know you're not George Clooney or something. You're not super famous, but you're the you're the guy we know. It's like I know this guy's work. I've seen him for a, a thousand years, and and that was such a great piece um, that I hadn't seen the first one. So I went back and watched that one. Just great stuff. So I, I was really really excited to get you on. So what we'll do is we'll we'll sort of go non-linear. You know, we'll we'll start linear, but we'll bounce around wherever we, wherever it takes us. Um, but one thing was interesting because I was you know I don't do a whole lot of research. I'm not here with blue cards and James Lipton or anything. But I was looking through a bunch of stuff, and uh, you and I are pretty much the same age within like a couple of months. All right. I saw a, a YouTube video of you doing eruption. You probably nineteen. Yeah. 18 or 19 in 1988. So that's where I want to start because we come from the same time and, and same time period. So was it always music when you were a kid first? That was what uh, really started it, yeah, right? Sure. I, I had a, I had a sense of humor uh, looming underneath there, but I was taking myself real seriously overall and trying to be a musician. Right. Um, so what was the kind of stuff? Was it Van Halen and that kind of stuff at the time? And the yeah, I think uh, I think when I was about seven or eight, I was living in New York City at the time. Probably uh, that would have been when we were on Hundredth Street in Riverside. Um, I was watching TV and I saw Elvis. Probably 
he, it was probably right when he died. That might've been why they were showing uh, footage of him. And I saw an old foot, old footage of him playing guitar and maybe it was heartbreak hotel or something. And I was just like, that is awesome. And uh, my parents bought me a, a cheap acoustic guitar and I started learning it. And, uh, and just, uh, just absorbing all kinds of music, mostly, uh, at that time, mostly, uh, pop music but then when I started playing guitar I started getting into classical and all kinds of other stuff it was just a whole world of stuff to explore but yeah when I heard Eddie Van Halen's uh, eruption when that album came out uh it just blew my mind and and I just sat there literally I'm not exaggerating probably about four hours of every one of my days throughout uh middle school you know I was I was playing guitar and then all of a sudden there was like a click where all of a sudden I could do the thing that he was doing and it was just the most exciting thing ever. And then, and then I really just, up until about uh, the late 80s, I was just all in on it. I wanted to be a studio musician. I, I kind of thought the rock star thing was going to be like winning the lottery. So I think I even knew that much at that time. But uh, but I was like, maybe I could be one of these session guys, you know, who just gets hired to show up and do that and make, make a living doing music. That would be great. And uh, that, as it turned out, is like winning the lottery too. You know, all these circles are really small. There's like five guys that do it. And, uh, and I do mean guys, hopefully it's not just guys nowadays, but uh, they, um, you know, they, they're a pretty tight circle. Somebody pretty much has to die in order for you to get in there, you know? So I was like, whatever. And that's, that's when I went to college and just tried to, to get a regular job. <laughs> you said, you, you said this was New York city when you were a kid, but you're from yeah. Southern California, right? Originally, or? It's a tough one because I was born in New York city. Uh, and we, I, we lived there until I was about 10 and then moved to Englewood, New Jersey for a couple of years. And then we're out in Southern California by the time I was 12. Right. And so, your dad, your dad was an actor. So was that the, that was his gig or, or. Yeah. My dad uh, did a lot of theater in New York okay. and my mom did a lot of commercials. They were both actors and they're trying to raise kids. And, and uh, so it was a natural move. Uh, New York was great for my dad because he did all the theater. His biggest accomplishment there, I guess, was uh, Buried Child by Sam Shepard. He was in the original um, New York production of that that won a Pulitzer Prize. And, uh, and you know, that, that was very high profile thing. You'd see like Warren Beatty in the audience, and Dustin Hoffman and all this stuff. And, and uh, but he had earned a lot of street cred. And, and when you make that move, I guess it's probably still today, but when you make the move from New York to LA, the people in LA, you've got that New York scent on you and they, they like that, you know, they're like, Oh, this guy's done theater. And then he started working a lot as soon as we moved out here in TV and some film too. Right. So, yeah, I don't know if it's still like that. I mean, I think, I think you have to be from Australia to have any credibility anymore. <laughs> That's true. You have to have some kind of accent. And then... So, yeah. So as a kid with with two performer parents um what's the, what's your sort of memory of that how do you kind of digest that now like will you do you look back and go was i even aware was i thinking about how this life is and do you kind of 
look at it with your life now? How does how do you look at that now? Well, it's interesting because I, I was listening to a podcast uh, where they I probably just did a Google ego search on my name and I came across this podcast and they, they were talking about our my movie and uh, I say our movie because the director is Greg Vans, who's my writing partner also and uh, so. Um, but I was listening to it and they were just kind of these cynical guys and they liked the movie, but they're just like, I don't know, this guy, Henry, you know, it's like grows up, you know, in Hollywood, he's got actor parents and all that stuff. And I'm just like, I almost laughed out loud. Cause I'm like, I had two unemployed actors waiting for a gig. I literally rebelled against the entertainment business because of watching them. That, that's kind of why I gave up on the, the guitar stuff. Like I was in, and went to college. Cause I was like, this is not uh, a life for anybody, you know? It's like, they're sitting by the phone waiting for it to ring. My mom was getting a hundred rejections for every one thing that she booked. And it just didn't seem like a, a thing that I wanted to, to pursue. But I, I will give them this, that I had an advantage because it, when, when the time did come that I wanted to get into entertainment, it wasn't foreign to me, you know? Right. I had a lot of friends, you know, my, I, I just thinking of particular friends of mine, my friend Greg Warren, whose dad was a wrestling coach and always pushing him. And he had a corporate job for a long time. And then in his 30s, he gave it all up to pursue comedy and he's doing very well. And he brought that work ethic with him. But for guys like him, I think it was a little bit of a harder jump because what were my parents going to say when I said to them, hey, I'm going to do comedy for a living? They, they can't say anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, you guys did it. So I did that have that as an advantage, you know. Right. Although there must have been that one little that one little dream in their mind where they're like, all right, well, he wants to be a musician, but I think he's gonna give it up. Let's see what he picks next. <laughs> yeah, 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 true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it looks like we struck out twice. He's going for comedy. <laughs> they were always pretty much supportive. They were, you know, in in a lot of ways, they were there for me all the time, but they were also a little hands off in terms of what my brother and I both were going to do for a living. My brother went completely straight, got a, a regular uh, office job, and he's been working it for 25 years, has the 401k, the whole thing. And we call him the black sheep of the family. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that, yeah, of course, he doesn't fit the, the, the picture at all in that family. So, so you... So when you decide you're going to go to college and you kind of put showbiz away, what was your th thought? What were, you, what were you planning on becoming? Uh, I, was, uh, I, I really was attracted to the idea of being some kind of a suit wearing guy, maybe a lawyer or maybe or may, just just something that would, that would make me feel like I'm legitimate, you know, because I just never really felt, I mean, I had long hair throughout high school and I, I didn't like the fact that I, I started getting tired of the fact that uh, I was always a little bit of an outlier and I, I wanted to fit into the system a little more, you know? So I, I got a degree in political science. I was thinking about maybe going to law school afterward. I was looking into that. I liked, I liked the idea of journalism a lot, um, but I'll tell you what happened. During the last year of college, I was at UCLA and um, I, I had a, a few of my buddies that were still, uh, you know, doing music. Well, one particular friend of mine said that he was playing drums in bands all around the uh, all around L.A. And a lot of times he was the go to guy for accompanying uh, comedy sketch troops and stuff like that. And uh, 
he knew that sometimes when I was, when we were doing music, I would goof around with some funny songs. And he goes, man, if you went up and did one of your songs right in the middle of this sketch group, I think people would go crazy. And I was like, all right, well, let's try it. And so he, he taught me into going in there on a Friday night. There were probably all of 16 people in the audience and they did, they were doing their sketch troupe. And, uh, in the middle, they brought me out and they said, we have a, a guy who's going to do a song. And I did a song. And even though there were only 16 people, they were laughing really hard. And I was addicted. I was like, I want more of that. And I just uh, slid by my, my last year of college and got all the prerequisites done and got that out of the way. And then went full bore into hanging out at coffee houses and uh, comedy clubs and, um, for about five years, I was doing uh, guitar lessons and I was also, tut I had a job tutoring for the, for the English part of the SAT because I was pretty good at that. And uh, so I worked for a company doing that. And yeah, I was just scraping enough together uh, to pay the rent. But after about five years of uh, building up an act, comics started bringing me out as their opening act uh, to mm -hmm. comedy. And I started getting paychecks and then it was all, that was my career from that point on. <laughs> what? fascinated me so much was you know your how multifaceted multi-talented you were and so music itself that whole that whole world is so completely different uh um discipline wise you know because i've interviewed a lot of musicians and and it's it's a totally different head i mean there's a lot of similar things to performers and and certainly comedians a whole other arm completely different disciplines so to back up for, for music, um, you're a songwriter. Were you writing before the comedy stuff when you were taking yourself seriously? Um, when you're writing a song, where does that stuff come from for you? Is it melodically first? Is it lyrically first? Do words come into your head? Like, oh, I've, I've found it interesting. Different musicians come at it different places. I'm curious as to how it happens for you. For me, it was always a melody. And then the, the pain in the ass part was how do I get some words to go in here that make enough sense that I don't sound like an idiot. But no, it was always the melody. I just always had those running in my head. And, you know, looking back, chances are they were little sort of variations of things that I heard when I was eight years old, you know, like, cause I was listening to so much music at that time. And, uh, but yeah, sometimes I would write a melody that I, I don't think that belongs to anybody. I think that could be a hit song. And then I would just try to come up with a lyric afterward, you know? And um, so, yeah, for me, it was always that first. Now, then when I started doing this comedy thing, I, I came up with a, a hack, you know, like a little bit of a trick. I was like, okay, if I come up with a premise for a comedy song, like for example, you know, at the, in college, I was learning about all these uh, people that we study, like, uh, you know, Da Vinci and, uh, you know, Plato and Catherine the Great and all these other people. And then you, you always in college find out that uh, they turned out to be child molesters or some kind of weird. They had some weird thing. And so I thought, wouldn't that be great? You know, a great premise for a bit would be like, you know, the, the we're standing on the shoulders of freaks, basically. And uh and so I, I would sort through all my old melodies that I used to have as real songs. And I'd be like, can I cram that into this melody somehow? Okay. And I think that wound up being a 
really good way to do it. That's how I wrote about 40 songs. They were, they were pre-existing melodies that were meant to be serious, but new comedy ideas. And I just sort of banged them in there. And I think that's why some of the songs sound real serious. And I think that's where a lot of the humor comes from because it sounds like a guy really trying, you know, like really trying to do the real thing. <laughs> was uh, in, in I, I forget whether it was Punching Henry or whether it was, I've seen, I've heard the story several different times. It was probably in both pictures, but I can't remember exactly. Was the reading the, the headlines to the girlfriend yeah. kind of intro into doing that? What do you want me to do about it? That's that, that original song that I was mentioning earlier where, uh, I went up on stage the first time and that, that song just slaughtered. And that was the one my buddy, Eric, who was a drummer, uh, told me specifically, you got to do this. Uh, we might've changed some of the names in the, in the movie, but to, to make it match the plot line a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, that was absolutely my friend, Eric. I think he was going through a bummer time. I don't know if it was a breakup or whatever, but I had like a, uh, there was a newspaper in front of me, like the Wall Street Journal or something, one of those really technical articles about something. And, and I'm like, you know, I know everything sucks for you. And I know you're going through a breakup. And I know that uh, General Motors just shed 14% of its automotive components operations to accelerate the overhaul of unprofitable North American expenditures, resulting in a loss of nearly 14,000 American jobs. But what do you want me to do about it? And it was so silly. And then I, I wound up writing new verses every time. And I had a whole thing about mad cow disease. And then there was like, you know, um, it just, it, it was just such an easy format to keep fresh. And so uh, I would do that. It's, hyster <laughs> it's hysterical. And it, it, I can imagine it killing that first time. Oh, sure. Go ahead. What? I got a cat that I'm going to put in his uh, room because he's trying to ruin this thing. <laughs> He can be, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm determined to not have any more distractions from this point on. So anyway, sorry. You know, he's going to start screaming from in there. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, so that first one was the headline thing and that killed and you're like, all right, well, I can do this. This is, this is, um... yeah. that was the first song. And then this all ties in because I, all of a sudden they played one of my songs on the radio, Kayla West. <laughs> five o'clock bunnies and actually before that i can't remember if it was after that but it was i got played on the dr demento show which was uh, the novelty you know this the uh holy grail of novelty music and um so i thought well how about that here i was trying to be a rock star throughout all my teens i gave up went to college and now here i am thinking about making records and performing on stage in front of people and uh, I was kind of in a weird way getting the rock star dream that I wanted and you could tell I tried too because like the first one cover that I have I've got the Bon Jovi hair going on and I was like yeah which makes no sense on a comedy album but I was really trying to trying to do the rock star thing and uh, like have my cake and eat it too kind of thing but I, I really did I was like wow I and then I had musician friends saying how did how does it work when you show up to a comedy club? Are people already there? Because musicians are like, they have to work their asses off to get 10 people in the audience. And I've done a bunch of that too. But I was like, no, they, I show up at the comedy club. It's called Banana Farts or whatever. And uh, there's, they give you a thousand dollars or whatever for the week. And uh, I don't have to do anything. They just have people there already. They don't know my name, but they just go in to see the comedian. And, um, 
and they, my friends were fascinated by that. And it, and I didn't have to split the money with a bunch of band members or anything like that, you know? So it was a real, I, I really was happy when I suddenly started making a career out of it. And I got a little bit of a record deal with a small label called Olio Records and uh, did a lot of phone radio stuff. And uh, yeah, that was. So, so this is what, like the mid to late nineties. Uh, What's that? 98, something like that. So, yeah, I mean, just before you there, there, there were guys who like Kinnison was trying to be a rock star there for a while. And I mean, all those guys, Dice, all those guys were doing the rock star album, the Eddie Murphy thing. Yeah. You could tell they really, really wanted to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, they, they fell into comedy as, especially like Kinnison, because he had a whole rock star vibe about him, you mm -hmm. know? And yeah. They were all really doing that. And, and there is a kind of a common expression that I've heard comics and musicians say is that all, all comics want to be rock stars and all rock stars want to be comedians, you know? <laughs> so in the beginning, are you, you said you're going out with, uh, you're kind of hanging around, you're, you're, you're creating your own stuff, but you're going out with other comics. They're putting you, they're having you open for them kind of thing. Is this where you hook up with Stanhope and you start doing that stuff or? Yeah. Stanhope, uh, he and I met in 96 and that was at the improv. Uh, we were the only two guys that had the same hair, you know, just both hair. And it was only a matter of time before it, it was like, hey, man, what's going on? <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, literally from the back, it just looked like the same person. And, uh, and it still cracks me up to this day uh, that uh, when I performed one night at the improv, <clears throat> it was, I think it was my first night ever playing at the improv out in West Hollywood there. And, uh, it went really well, <clears throat> but it was, it was a very soft kind of a all audiences friendly sort of a set. And uh, afterward I went to the bar and I was sitting there and then I heard Doug say, uh, who's the guitar guy? What's the guitar guy? And I go, yeah, that's me. And he goes, all right, I keep getting people coming up to me saying, are you the guitar guy? <laughs> and, uh, and then they're saying that, you know, uh, they enjoyed my set. And I, I say, no, I'm not the guitar guy. He goes, what I want you to do is I'm doing a set tomorrow night. I want you to sit at the bar and a bunch of people are going to come up to you and say, hey, are you that asshole who called my wife a cunt? <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, we knew that I was going to be friends with this guy. And, and we were friends. We were neighbors and uh, we just uh, used to chat all the time. We'd go around and uh, do comedy together in L.A. And I was blown away by him because I was like, man, this guy, I went to San Francisco once. And he had his headshot on the in the uh, the little glass there that shows the upfront uh, upcoming comedians, and that that just blew me away. It seems silly now thinking about that the fact that, but I was like, wow, this guy doesn't even seem much older than me, and he's like the star of the show. That was amazing. Like, he was just a, a a rock star in our world, you know. And um, it's like he pulled off this magical thing that everybody's been trying to figure out. How do you make this your living, you know? But uh, yeah, finally in 99, he asked me, uh, yeah, can you uh, come down to Houston to open up for me? And then that was my first road gig. It went over like gangbusters. A lot of, I had a lot of really bad shows over my career, like you'll see like in those movies. But I will say that a lot of these first shows were the, the ones that really made me stick with it. Like, the first week that I did with Stan Hope was just gangbusters. And then the club owner got to be friends with me and started having me back to headline. 
the first night I went up uh, on that one Friday night in front of 16 people, that one went well. There's a lot of first shows that went well enough to keep me in the business. And then years down the line, I started having some really, really rough ones out there. Let me ask this question. In those first, that first stack of material that you're doing, is it mostly all music or, or are you thinking I got to, I got to do some, you know, typical kind of stand up here? Like how do you, how are you mixing? What, what kind of stuff did you have in your set? That came later. So what I would do is mo most of my act came from watching uh, people doing folk music for real in these coffee houses. So I would do a little bit of a story before the song that was, you know, half of the audience wouldn't even get it because it was a complete joke. I'd be like, hey, you know, I guess, you know, kind of like the rest of, of you guys, I always get those kind of voices in your head, you know, the one really high pitched voice saying, help me. And then there's like a low voice saying, come with me to hell or whatever. And I'm sure you guys all get this, but I try to say it as serious as possible is that people are like, what the hell is, this? <laughs> you know? Uh, but anyway, this is a song that I wrote for, uh, for my girlfriend on her 13th birthday. And I'm going to share it with you now, you know, I <laughs> would just do all these things. And so, uh, the, the act itself was a music act with funny banter in between, but it was very dry. And then when my career became getting paid to play at comedy clubs, you uh, sudden, suddenly I have a club owner in the back, nervous about whether people are laughing or not. And it, it was, I, I, there was pressure on me to try to amp up the act a little bit and, and it was difficult and, and the act started turning into something that I wasn't quite crazy about because I liked the whole dry thing, but you, you just couldn't get away with that in front of a lot of these audiences. It's late Friday night. People are drunk. They don't want to think they just want to have something, you know? And so I started drinking a lot too. And I was just trying, just to try to catch up with what they're at and just uh, became sort of a party thing. And, um, but, but not as funny, I don't think. And then uh, the, Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah. So going back to your question, I, I finally started realizing the, the music thing was a turnoff for at least a third of the audience. They were they would start halfway through just talking because they're used to, you know, when you go to a coffee house or something, uh, you got a musician playing and you just talk over it. And I started realizing that was a problem. Oh. And I would walk on with the guitar and immediately there were a critical mass of people that would just be like oh man i didn't come here to see a musician i came here to so that's when i started going okay well i have a lot of funny ideas it's going to be difficult but i think i need to go out there and just do stand up for the first 10 minutes or 15 minutes just to kind of keep the stand up theme going and then i could say hey does anybody want to hear some music i'll close it out with some music and then i'd pick up the guitar and then do all my my best songs and shows started going much better after that at the comedy clubs because so, I was new. So let me ask you this. So were you, were you, how quick were you comfortable with the actual standup? You know, because you remember you went into this thing sort of as a, a, a songwriter became a sort of a satirical spoof songwriter, but now you, you're going to go up there and, and do it. I mean, was it easy? Was it? It's was a it year. Yeah. I mean, I, I started experimenting with that at open mic nights in like 2004, 2005, and probably did it for about five years. I started calling uh, comedy clubs when I was on my off weeks, but I was still stuck out in, you know, Nashville or something. I'd call a comedy club and say, hey, can I like there was one week that I uh, Jim Jeffries came into town and I was hanging out in Nashville and 
I at I had been a headliner at the club there, and uh, but I called the owner and said, "Hey, can I be the MC this week? You know, I'll just bring out the the comics. You don't even have to pay me that much or whatever. Just whatever you normally pay the local guy, and uh, I'll just." Uh, use it as a chance to work out my stand-up and so I did a lot I, I did a lot of that type of thing I also opened for some buddies of mine I went to Nebraska to Omaha and worked at the comedy club there as the opening act and and it became like a mechanical bull ride it's like I'd have the guitar behind me but how how long can I stay on here without grabbing the guitar right, but right. no not easy at all uh I was also painfully isn't it ironic how we, we choose these types of careers, but I was always a very insecure person. I'm just like, right. without the guitar in front of me, I'm just thinking, oh man, they're looking at my face. They're looking at my hair. Like, what, what the hell? Like you just feel so vulnerable up there just standing sure. there. And as soon as you do a joke that doesn't work, Ooh, it, it goes down from there. It's really hard to get them back. <clears throat> so yeah, I, I always compare it to like a, a flight, you know, like, you know, the, if the plane takes off and all of a sudden you hit massive turbulence, right. even if it straightens out for the last three hours of the flight, the only thing you can remember is, boy, that was a tough one. Right. Uh, I got a message saying my connection is unstable. Hopefully it's still doing all right here. You're still good. You froze a little bit there for a second, but you're still good. You're fine. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, because the, uh, the interesting thing about, I, I, I've only had one other comedian that I've gotten to, to interview and, and he's just... I mean, he's a, he's more of a Jackie, the joke man, Jackie Martling from uh Noel Howard Stern. Show. He's only a record. Yeah. And, but, but if that's just joke, 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 but the actual, what, what you guys do, it's a bits and stories and stuff. That's a whole other vulnerable thing. And like you said, because you're coming at it with a sort of a basic insecurity, I think that's, I think that's what fuels the truth of it, right? I mean, is your you you're bearing it out, you're laying it out there in that way, and they're receiving it, and they know they feel it in themselves, and that's that's the whole point is that communication of that truth. There was a very very specific moment. Well, and a lot of it goes back. I I always joke that I can't do a podcast without talking about Stanhope the whole time, but it really is true. I mean, the guy uh, is an amazing guy, but he he had a big influence on me, but. One of the biggest things was that uh, he would always laugh at, at all these personal failure stories that I had. And I had so many, I mean, about the industry, about girlfriends or whatever. And it started becoming clear. It's like, that's what's funny about Henry. You know, it's not whatever this rock star Bon Jovi thing that he's trying to do was not funny at all. But this is funny. And so I started really embracing that. And that's about the time that the movies came out. Uh, well, one punching the clown was 2008 and it was just go doubling down on failure because and, and then it occurred to me it's like well of course I mean that's the stuff that I always laughed at you know I mean I loved uh Albert Brooks and uh, Bob Newhart uh Gary Shanling all these people that were just their entire uh act with there's a movie called Modern Romance with Albert Brooks and it's just it's just him slamming himself the entire time so funny to me and Gary used to do his jokes I it was all about it, it was what I always pictured dating would be for me I was like that's exactly how it's going to go for me too but anyway yeah no that's the way and that's the thing that the 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 beauty of the of the craft of what you do is 
the truth you're giving to that audience is the is the the self-effacing vulnerability that nobody wants to kind of deal with right yeah. so you give you give them this target you know that they can focus on and be like that's me but it's not really me i can kind of laugh at it and that there's no greater thing in the world than that i mean that's the most awesome thing to do i think it's a it's a secret to laughter look look at some of the people like chris farley you know that we laugh so hard at you know it's like in my opinion my favorite moments of his are when he's putting himself down you know and it's like that's it makes us feel better about ourselves for whatever reason it just makes us feel like you know i guess i'm not so bad you know and it makes you laugh but uh, yeah i mean there, there's so many examples of that you know you you have to be willing to show the flawed side of yourself if you want people to start laughing right and and what you talked about before which is interesting too about comedy as opposed to some of these other performing arts that that i uh, i deal with is you got you have to you have to rehearse with your audience. Like there's no, you can't do it in your room, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You have to work. Yeah, you know, and I've heard, I'm borrowing words from other people that I've talked to over the years, but I, I think one person brought up the fact that like, yeah, you're, you're being asked the very first time that you perform, you don't get, get to go up and do a big George Carlin bit, you know? you're being asked to do five minutes of your own original thoughts in front of people that you've never done this before. At some point it has to be your first time. It's right. terrifying. I, I will say me backing into it with the music helped me a lot. It still took me so many years, but I've always envied these people that are just, you know, like Dave Chappelle, who apparently was in his early teens when he started doing standup, just a natural all the way through his whole life. You know, it's like, Hey, if somebody's like that, kudos to them. I was not that at all. But um, yeah, you you really are uh, being asked to do a, a lot when you're you're being asked to go up and do all original material and try to get people to laugh with that. Right, and or, you're uh, joke man thing. I will say that I I love. I know a lot of his jokes are sort of like street jokes, but I I always will love a good joke, like just a good solid. Yeah. One. I mean, and I think that one of the one of the secrets is in the midst of doing, and Woody Allen did this really well, is when you're doing one of those long self-deprecating types of stories, try to have a few of those little one-liner jokes in there. And that that's, you can use them both, you know? Right. Right. Well, what fascinated me about him, I, I did a picture with him uh, a few years ago. And when I, when I finally got to see him perform, cause I remember him from the Stern show and all that stuff. But when I finally got to see his act, I was like the stamina, you know, the memory, it's like, I can't remember a joke. For, this guy's like two hours of joke, one joke after another. Like, how do you even do that? It's bizarre. That, that is quite a talent in and of itself, for sure. You know, it is. It's like, uh, it's like Rodney, you know, it's all punchline, punchline. It's like, how do you remember the, like, it's not, you're not telling a personal story. You're just doing two guys walk into a bar for two hours. Well, and you can't repeat them big, but by accident, even you're doing like seven shows a week. I, I remember times when I was, doing two shows or even three shows a night on Saturday night. And I'm in the middle of telling a joke and I'm like, wait, did I do this last show or did I do it this show? And if you already pulled that joke, then they're just gone. They, they're like, this guy's a psycho. He's just telling the same joke he already did. So you have to be really careful that you're not repeating a joke. That's really embarrassing. That, that's a talent of itself. So we talked about, you, met, you mentioned Chappelle. So when you're coming up, 
um, and you're, you're, you're starting to get in the circle and you're going out and you're starting to build your act. Were there guys, I mean, obviously Stan Hope, who you hooked up with, became a friend and, and a very talented uh, guy. But were there other comedians where you're like, I wish I could do that because my stuff is this, but I don't know what the fuck that guy is doing. I'd love to do that. Yeah, well, in L.A., we had an alternative. Uh, there was a lot of uh, crossover going on at that time in the 90s from New York to L.A., and uh, they had, I think in New York, it was called like the Luna Lounge or something like that. And then we had a place called Largo out in L.A. And it was a place where people like David Cross and Bob Odenkirk and Paul F. Tompkins, all these people would do. They would uh, work on uh, new stuff. They, they didn't really look at it like they had pressure to make anybody laugh. They just wanted to workshop ideas. They already had great careers. You know, Mark Maron's another one, Janine Garofalo, all them. Mm-hmm. I would go to that Largo show every Monday night, and it was a hot thing. The, the room was really good. There'd be a couple of celebrities in there. The energy was amazing. I, Mickey Dolans would hang out there sometimes. It was like, this, this is a pretty cool time. And... Some comedians, I will say Paul F. Tompkins, used to just blow my mind because his story was always something happened that day. It'd be like, you know, so I was, you know, at the bus stop and I heard a guy and it just one, one random thing. And then he would expound on it for five minutes and it would just be the funniest thing. And I, and uh, yeah, I definitely had a lot of moments like, boy, that would be fun to be able to do that. And I, and I have a little bit, I, I, I never really, uh, felt comfortable doing a lot of improv up there. I always wanted to make sure I had, I, I wanted to be able to rest on the fact that I already had uh, an act to do by the time I got on stage. Um, but it was usually based on um, a real story. Uh, but yeah, so so I'm trying to think of some of the other people. Uh, Louis C.K., obviously, uh, you know, I know he's had his issues recently, but I, I, you can't take away the fact that, I mean, he was just, I mean, is one of the most insanely funny human beings to ever live, you know, and uh, I used to memorize his act. I'd go in and repeat it to my friends, you know, like after it was, it was so uh, economical with the language, especially like in the earlier days before he was doing more long form stuff. But um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other people that I would see just around town. Well, what's interesting, um, interesting is your style. Like you said that it's dry and it's like, um, it's so layered with, uh, detail. It's like, uh, it's like watching, you know, spinal tap or something where it's like, you, you know, there's a, there's a joke. I, I didn't even catch it. Like it flew, he did that so dry, it flew past my head. You know what I mean? Like you got a lot of spinal. Yeah. Spinal tap is one of my all time favorites. Like, and and you're always laughing at the joke. And then if you watch it like the fifth time, you hear another guy say something. It's like, I never heard that. Like after he says, you know, what a wanker right after the guy leaves. And then says, uh, you know, they were still booing him when we got on stage. (laughs) It's like I that one I completely missed it like the first four times, but yeah, there's so many of those, and uh, yeah, I love that type of stuff. You have, I, 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 that, you have a lot of that going on, not only in the lyrics of the song, but just the, you know, just dropping the you know, like you know, this is a song I wrote for my 13 year old girlfriend. I mean, it's just you know, I mean, come on, you don't see these things coming. <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah, that's always my favorite. Well, that that's a little bit of the. Uh, deep thoughts type thing you know it's like 
incredibly dark stuff, but the, but it's presented as in it in the way that you're normally used to seeing like a, a nice poem or something like that with the music and. I guess I was trying to do like a, a folk song version of a deep thoughts type thing, you know? Right. So, all right. So let's get into the, um, now we're going to kind of transition. Were you ever looking to be an actor or were you, were you in, cause at that time, well, maybe a little earlier than that, but yeah, a little earlier than you, but everybody was trying to get a show like all yeah. Seinfeld and Roseanne. And they were all trying to get the, the big, you know, the payoff, the sitcom. Was that ever in your, in your thought process or did you think, well, I want to make this film or how did that happen for you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so in the nineties, when I was doing this, you pretty much had two choices. You could be, I mean, the shining example was Anthony Clark, who's from Boston and he had a show called Boston common. And then there was another show after that, but he, he was a guy who everybody looked at and said, now that's the dream. You know, you've got your own show built around you. You're making millions of dollars. In the 90s, we didn't have podcasts, no YouTubes, you know, or, you know, any of these types of things. You had two choices. You were either going to be Anthony Clark and win the lottery that way, or you're going to be telling dick jokes for 100 bucks a night. You know, there, there were no like sort of a Joe Rogan type guy who, who came out of the middle and just made millions of dollars. That just wasn't really a thing. Of course, Joe Rogan's another guy who did well in sitcoms, of course, too. But uh but yeah, I mean, I, I was, I did not have the acting chops. I did not have the confidence in my face or anything. Like I just did not see the sitcom thing happening for me. And that was what everybody was pursuing out there. Uh, I, I was like, I'm going to. Let me just stop you right there. Along that same line, did the experience of your dad kind of come into your mind in that I always wished I had his talent. I mean, he was perfect for sitcoms. There's a taxi episode called On the Job that he did, that they they had been seeing him around town and they wrote the part for him. And he just was perfect for sitcoms. It was big and it was also, and you have an acting background, so you know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's dry, like the way you see it in film, but there's also sitcom dry, which is, it's a big- Yeah. Part, like like a guy who I would say does it real well is like the uh, on wings the what's his name Thomas Hayden Church you know is that how- yes yeah. he he's dry and deadpan but but it's big enough deadpan that it works in front of a live like there's that's this very special kind of talent you know and right. I did not have that and I think you needed that and uh, I think they call it TVQ also and. Um, but my dad had it. I, I wish some of it rubbed off on me. I got, I was thinking, uh, this is the irony now this is a time that I could really use the genetics that my dad had. And I didn't have it at all. So, uh, so I, I decided, okay, I'm going to be a road comic then. That's what I'm going to do. But in about 2005 or 2006, my old buddy from college, Greg, started um, teaching at UCLA, teaching film. Okay. He'd gone to film school and he and I always talked about these stories that would happen to me in Hollywood. I mean, there were just so many. I would tell him about the bar that I performed at where the, the deal was that I was supposed to get, you know, uh, $4 a head. And then at the end of the night, there's 40 people in there and I'm going, all right, $4. So that would be 160 bucks. And the guy gives me $14. And I was like, it's not even the $14 I get that if you gave me 12, I'd be like, all right, you're screwing me. But 14 isn't even 
doesn't make sense. It's not even divisible by four. You know, it's like you're just obviously screwing me out of money here. At least try a little bit to make it look right. That didn't work, right? <laughs> yeah. They, oh, there were three people. Here's twelve dollars. But instead, it's like fourteen, or they're three and a half people. What are you talking about? So. I would tell him stuff like this. And he's like, man, we got it. We got to make a movie about this. And this is where everything started going in, in my favor. And that's that uh, he said, people, kids, film students of his at UCLA were making their own movies with digital cameras, sure. Panasonic, HD, whatever. And he's like, look, I, I didn't get into film because I wanted to teach it. I wanted to make it. And um, one time he just showed up to my door and he said, we're, we're making it. We're just making a movie. We, we've got the script. We've got all those stories. We're just going to build a plot throughout the whole thing. And we're going to call up, I'll call up some of my students and they can help. And we had a couple of false starts, but eventually in, I think it was February of 2008, we shot uh, for about 20 days straight, <clears throat> uh, punching the clown. And now Going back to your question about whether I wanted to be an actor, maybe maybe I always kind of did, but I didn't think I had it in me. But what I really, really did enjoy was storytelling. And I, I loved telling people like Stan Hope the story of, you know, like the one I just told you, or uh, I had, uh, you know, the manager who was trying to come up with some kind of a label for me. And she's like, how about James Taylor on Smack? And I was like, I think James Taylor actually was on smack. That doesn't make sense at all. You know? So I, I had all these things. So That's right. I'm telling you, Russ, the, the process of showing up to the film shoot and reenacting all those stories just fit like a glove for me. I was like, I'm playing myself. So I didn't have to be a big character. It wasn't a, so I didn't have to have that certain magic that people have in that, in that particular realm. I could be understated, but it would be, the way that uh, understated films are and um and i love that art form you know so it the 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 three weeks of showing up to the film set for that movie i'm looking back at was probably just about one of the best times of my life you know even over some of the big shows that i got to do and everything because i was like i'm doing it i you know my buddy is playing the character of the agent, you know, and the record label guy that I met 10 years ago, I've got a perfect buddy who's, who's doing that part so well, everything just fits so well. And then um, that, that's when I was just like, I can do the acting thing if I get to just be myself. If, as long as I'm not uh, supposed to be grandiose or um, anything that requires actual talent in terms of acting, I can act like myself, you know, that's, that's about, and, and once you know that about yourself, then, you know, let me ask you this question, two, two questions. One, you, before you guys decided to just do it, because we've all as independent filmmakers, we've all finally come to that place many times yeah. where it's just like, fuck this. Where's the credit card? I, I can't wait to do this. Before you did that, you said you had a script. So you had you written a script and we're trying to shop it and get it done kind of a thing. Yeah, we were trying to do the pre do-it-yourself method, which was right. another winning, everything was winning the lottery. We were going to try to pitch a script right. to a major studio. And it's like, who, who the hell are these guys? You know, and that that's that's the, the beauty of the era that we're in now is that uh, you can do stuff yourself. And I, I love it. But um, 
Yeah. So, okay. So specifically, so when Greg and I graduated, I think in 94, UCLA, we remained friends. He went to film school in Syracuse. I became a comic, like I mentioned, and I had, I started gathering all these stories and Greg for his final project at Syracuse made a 16 millimeter uh, film called a portrait of Henry Phillips, punching the clown, a portrait of Henry Phillips. And we got that into a couple of film festivals and there's some footage of that on YouTube. <laughs> um, so yeah, 16 millimeters, just, it was just beautiful. You know, I mean, just, 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 it, just to see the film, like we filmed on the beach and everything. It's like, that's just an era that's just bygone. You know, everything's digital now and everything, right. but pretty fun to look at that old film footage. And um, so we, uh, so, so let me ask you this question. So you, you're pitching a script now I would imagine just the nature of, of your comedy and your stories. It's a, it's tough to pitch a script just to be read like that. You know what I mean? It's. We had, we had that prototype movie and that's all, but that, that was the one thing that everybody was impressed with. We, we did get an option deal with a company called Mr. Mud, who also company, uh, they, they did a lot of stuff back then. And uh, they, I think they did the movie Ghost World, which was pretty big, you know, and, um, but they, uh, they, they optioned it, which means that, you know, for, I guess for a couple of years, they're going to take us out to, they even sent us to England at one point to go do pitch meetings to try to, I guess that the idea was to get foreign pre-sales. So if you could get a company in France and then a company in England, to pay a hundred thousand dollars each ahead of the time for the movie for the rights to show the movie that's how you did it I did. the only problem is you would have needed to get gerard depardieu guaranteed to be in it <laughs> oh yeah we we talked about that all the time there was there was always talk about which celebrities are we going to get into this thing but the reality is that nobody read the script and said this is a must-do script nobody and I don't blame them because so much of it, I have to be there. The readings went well. We did readings and those went well. You could start sort of seeing, oh, I get it. It's all about the kind of low uh, mumbling kind of timing of the whole thing. And, um, right. but, but yeah, sending the script to somebody, we would never get a call back. And so that, that whole plan failed miserably. But again, uh, there was gonna be a time when you didn't have to win the lottery to be successful, you could actually just do stuff yourself, you know? So when you finally did it, you know, you're shooting this thing, how long did it take you to shoot that? Uh, days, and then some pickups. How many yeah. days? About 21 days. Okay. Uh, and, then if, and then a few pickups. And uh, was okay. this the typical uh, independent calling all favors? Every location's a favor. Every, you know, we're trying yeah, to find a way around. I think the budget was 125 grand and it was mostly came from uh, Greg's life savings <laughs> and uh, his credit cards and some family, some family of mine. I had some cousins kick in, uh, two cousins specifically. Uh, one of my cousins, fortunately, has been very successful and he just wanted to see the thing get done. He's never, he's never going to see that money again. I hope he does. Who knows? Maybe there's a way, but I, it's looking less and less likely, but uh um, at some point in my life, I got to pay it back. But, <laughs> but yeah, the, the movie um, never, it, I, I think it made about a quarter of what was put into it back. And that was because, I don't want to jump ahead, but we made, 
uh, well, Greg passionately went in on his laptop and started cutting the thing. And then uh, I think in about, I'm just trying to think of the timeline here. I think in about May or June, we, there was a full cut and it was two hours long. And we screened it in LA in front of like a hundred friends. And honestly, it's very, this is the part that's fascinating to me to this day because we had the most generous audience you could imagine. They knew me, they were friends of mine, family members, everything. And the movie sort of went like, okay. It didn't really go that great. And we were like, wow, that's interesting. And then I, I also, years later, heard uh, a friend of mine uh, who's a director said, uh, your movie's never gonna be as good as watching the dailies and it's never gonna be as bad as watching your first cut. Right. So I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And in, in our cases, I was like, but it felt so good when we were doing it. How come it, and I'm not putting down Greg's edit of it. it. It was, it was all there. It was everything. But at that screening, there was a lady named Carol Kravitz, who was an editor for a bunch of HBO stuff. And she was a professional editor. Again, not taken, taken away from Greg as a filmmaker, but she, she's offered, she said, I'm off, I'm between projects right now. Uh, my daughter's in school all day. Why don't you? Why don't we say every morning for two weeks, from eight a.m. to four p.m., let's meet over at my place and go through the movie frame by frame, wow. and, and start cutting it. And so I learned more in that two weeks than I've ever learned. And it was like, you know, there'd be uh, a bus, or, or we had a. Uh, a van scene, you know, where the guy's going through Laurel Canyon and he pulls up to a payphone, and it was probably about six seconds of the van showing up to the payphone, and she's like, "I think we get that there's a van showing up to the payphone. I think we could probably cut after maybe three seconds, you know, stuff like that." And, and there was a whole subplot that we had built in where we were passing this post-it note on, and it took us to all these different characters that we didn't, that didn't have any development or anything. And there's just one entire scene between this journalist and a woman that they woke up in bed together and they were, they had been sleeping together. And then he wants to get this post-it note and it's a big dramatic scene. And they're talking about art and music and all this other stuff. And, and I remember uh, Carol Kravitz said, and she's, she's French too. So, you know, she's got a French accent and everything. I'm not going to try to do the accent, but he just goes, this actress is so good and the camera loves her. She is fantastic. She seems very passionate about what she's talking about. Who the fuck is she and why is she in this movie? <laughs> and we couldn't really answer. We we're going, well, we thought this was an interesting thing to go to. And she goes, I want to know what's happening with your character. And we're just watching a whole different movie right now. And so we just got rid of it. We turned the entire uh probably 20 minute subplot of passing that post-it note around into a montage over a three minute song. And suddenly we just moved right to it. And so when we were done with those sessions and then there were certain things that Greg would fight for, he'd say, I'm sorry, I know both of you guys hate it, but this is, this is staying in there because it's, it just has to. And I had some too. There was one when, um, when, uh, the manager gives her card to the record label guy and he takes a look at it and goes, great. And then passes it back. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. 
it never worked with with audiences. It, it worked one in like five percent. It was like one of those Spinal Tap moments that you're talking about. It's like you get business card back to them, and um, but I fought for it. I was like, guys, I know you don't get it. I know it doesn't work, but we gotta we gotta have those things in there because somebody's gonna enjoy it, you know. So so the the rule became whoever fought the hardest for it would stay in there. But but for the most part, we just the movie became a 90 minute film. So now it's a 90 minute tight comedy. And then we screened it again and it was just gangbusters. And then um, we submitted to Sundance and then submitted to Slamdance, the alternative version. Uh, got, re- got rejected from Sundance, of course, because we didn't have Steve Buscemi in it or whatever. And but Slamdance loved the movie and they were just like, we, we're going to promote the hell out of it. This is great. And um, I wasn't at the first screening, but I was told by everybody that I know that was there to just said that it was just howling laughter throughout the whole thing. And then I showed up a couple of uh, days later to Park City and watched one of the screenings and it was, and we, we won the audience award. Then we did a whole bunch of festivals. It was a really fun year. This is 2009. And then eventually in 2010, it got on Netflix in both this, the DVD version where they send you the DVD and then also the digital streaming. And the digital streaming was insane. I, I remember going to New York during like 2010 and just walking across the street and like a, a businessman with a briefcase and everything, just like, hey, I think I just saw a movie with you, you know? And it's, cause it was that time and, and New Yorkers are always ahead of the, the technology. It was, everybody was cutting their cable and especially all of, uh, the younger people like comics and everything, they, they were like, all right, I've watched every movie on Netflix, what else is there? And people were like, I watched this one, Punch in the Clown, you might want to check it. So everybody started watching our movie and then uh, it started going around, especially in the comic uh, circle. And uh, two things there, two things I want to stop on one, First of all, the, the craft of editing and and how you build a performance in an edit that that that's a lesson in itself because so much it's just one frame difference, two frames difference from a, a fantastic moment to a terrible moment, pacing all that stuff. And plus, you guys were in it, you were in it for so many years, the two of you. That sec that third set of eyes to come in and go, time out. I'm a I'm the audience. Let me let me cut this, you know, that, that, I mean, that's a lesson in itself. And then um, the other bit was I, you, you go in and you win slammed it. Was it the, the, the audience award or the, I forget what, what it won the whole thing. Right. Yeah. So was it after that, that uh, cause I read somewhere where it, you did a little four wall thing in New York, a little theater run. And that's where kind of all the comedians kind of came and, yeah, so that that was after that. Um, sadly, after all of our wonderful experiences of uh, film festivals in 2009, where everything was going like gangbusters, this is before it got on Netflix. Uh, we ran out of film festivals, and we were sitting with this movie. Everybody at Slamdance told us because it was 2009, right? The the economy had just collapsed a couple months before. And there was a depressing kind of ghost town feeling in Park City. They were like, last year, the, the streets were all full. And now there's half the people here. And I got to say, guys, if, if you showed your movie last year, 
you would have sold it for a million dollars or $500,000 or something, but you would have sold it. And nobody's buying right now because nobody knows what's going to happen. And I was like, yeah, sounds about right. That's that's the story of my life, of course. So, um, yeah, to, it's just like your friend saying, oh, man, the one party you didn't go to, we had all these naked girls. And it's like, <laughs> I should we're all listening to Weird Al and drinking cheap beer. You know, what happened? <laughs> but so... Yeah, so I, that's what pretty much happened. When not to put down weird now, I love him, but I'm just saying when you're when you're partying with naked girls, you you got a whole different experience going on there. Um, I don't know why I went into all, but okay, so yeah. So uh, getting back on track, so Greg got a uh, a spam email or I would have called it spam. Like, like literally if I got the email, I would have dumped it right in the spam folder and said, how did they, how did that get here? And Greg got this email and it was from the quad cinema theater in uh, New York. And it said big letters, don't let your film die. <laughs> and it was like, you know, basically they were saying, pay us 10 grand and we'll show it for a week or two weeks. And we will promise you uh, that we'll call all the local press and we will um, show your movie. And it was basically pay to play. Sure. And I would have been like, screw that, man. If they want to watch the movie, then they have to pay for it or whatever. But Greg, who has a much more positive attitude about everything than I do, um, which is amazing. Because I don't think that the, the movies ever would have gotten made if it were if it were up to me. Like he's the one who's, who said, "Hey, we got to do this thing," and I'm I'm thinking, "Who in the hell do or we? You know, we, we can't just make a movie. You got to be famous, something like that." But he he's made it happen even since then several times. So he uh, took out one more credit card or whatever and borrowed one last bit of money and he he forked over he figured it out and he and he gave the quad cinemas that money. And it, that was it. It was fantastic. Quad Cinema is a little art theater in uh, kind of in the village there. And uh, it showed at the movie theater and they were right. And they came through with their word. They, we had the New York Times come out and Time Out and Village Voice and all of the big ones came down. New Yorker. And those reviews are still out there. And Rotten Tomatoes started going way up. And then... Uh, <laughs> The yeah, big thing that, was, was the comedy community, wasn't it? The, the comedians, because it was about your world and they want, they were like, you got to check this out. That's exactly right. So, oh, well, I, I have to say, how did the, the comedy uh, community find out about it? It was because of Sarah Silverman, who was a friend of mine at the time. And I had asked her to be in it and she didn't want to, and I don't blame her, but <laughs> she I'm just some guy saying, Hey, do you want to be in our film? And she has no idea whether it's going to be good or not. But when it came out, she loved it. And then she tweeted, this is the best movie about comedy I've seen so far. And she had like a million followers or whatever. And before you know it, everybody uh, started showing up to this quad cinemas, everybody wow. in comedy. And um, I was doing a lot of podcasts. My friend, uh, Danny, Dan Natterman, who's a, incredible comic and Danny LaBelle they had a podcast and they uh put me on there and we sat and talked about it for an hour and a half I, I went and did all the podcasts and uh and it was great and they did have a publicist so there was like listings in the paper and everything and who knew I thought it was spam but it turned out that that's the thing and then uh 
it was only a matter of time from that point that we got on Netflix through a distributor. Let me ask you this question. When all this is now blowing up and it looks like it's really doing well and all this stuff, what is the, what are you, what are you hearing from the comics around you? And like, are they, are people saying, you know, Hey dude, I saw the movie, man. You know, like is Sarah Silverman content. I mean, are, there, are these people contacting you saying you got, you nailed it. That's it. Yeah. No, uh, there's a, a comedian friend of mine, Joe list, who's out there in New York. And I, I, I think he's one of the funniest standups out there right now. I love him. Uh, he's probably seen that movie about 30 times and he, and he says it to me a lot and he shows it to his friends every now and then I'll meet a comic and they'll say, yeah, no, we haven't met, but I, uh, Joe list showed me your movie, you know? So it's like, there are, uh, and I, I love that, you know, and, um, I, yeah, the, the comics, especially the ones in New York, mm. uh, seem to really, really embrace it. And, and it was also a time when, uh, comics were becoming a little bit more, um, cohesive in terms of what like everybody was listening to the mark maron podcast uh everybody was uh everybody saw punching the clown like there, there were certain things that every comic was doing at that time and that was one of them you know it was just part of the toolbox of being a comic which was great because i mean there's probably across the country uh if i had to just randomly guess i'd say there's at least half a million people out there that are doing open mic nights or doing comedy or half-assing it or whatever, but they are in that comedy community and that's a career, you know, just 500,000 people is all you need, you know? So the, the movie uh, wound up getting a lot of exposure and that, and it set me up with a fan base for the next 10 years. So, so let's, I'm going to, I don't want to keep you too much longer, so I'm going to zip ahead a little bit. So that's 2009, 2010, we're talking right around that time period. Yeah. And then it got on Netflix. Right. So between that and its sequel, which is the one that I saw that it really introduced me uh, to go back and look at all your stuff. That's like 2016, 17, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, 2014. All right. So between in those, in that intervening time, are you back out on the road? Are you back working out new material? Are you back doing your gigs or what are you doing between those two pieces? Uh, I was full on road comic and that, that's what I did from 99 all the way to like uh, 2019, basically 20 years. And so that never stopped for me. Um, never really got any uh, other uh, stuff go going on, but um, I, I, I noticed that the, at the comedy shows there, there'd be the usual audiences that just came out to the comedy club for the night, but then there'd be about 15 people at every show that were just fans of the movie. And they were just kind of awesome. like, Oh yeah. So that was pretty cool. So, um, Greg so and I, went, yeah. In between those two pictures, let's talk about, you know, some of the road stuff. What's one of the, I mean, even if it's not in between that section, wherever it is, because I didn't spend any real time of you going out there gigging and doing it. What's some of the bigger venues or some of the more memorable moments highlight where you're like, I'm, I'm fucking, I did it. Look at this place. This place is, this place is filled or whatever, or whoever you're with or whatever you, what's the moment? Well, there was the radio show that I was doing that's based out of Indianapolis, a morning radio show called Bob and Tom. And they had a huge audience. They, basically, every place that Howard Stern wasn't, these guys were there, like Kansas, in Indiana, Ohio, all that kind of stuff. And um, they 
they didn't, they were already fine being radio hosts. They didn't have any interest in going out and doing live shows, but the comedians from the show, they thought, Hey, this is a great way to promote the show. And, uh, and so myself and a few other comic buddies, uh, Mike Berbiglia, uh, Greg Warren, Augie Smith, Mike McRae, they put together this, you know, friends of the Bob and Tom show and uh, set us up with like 38 uh, dates across the country. And uh, yeah, they were thousand seaters, you know, every time. And I, I was only one part of that, but I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not big enough to get these thousand people by myself, but I am performing doing my comedy in front of a thousand people every Friday and Saturday night flying to the next city. So that, that was, that was pretty great. Um, there was uh, I know I'm missing something big. There were a couple of TV appearances, Jimmy Kimmel. I did a half hour comedy special in comedy central and uh, that was, but um, I, okay. I, I think I can answer your question a little bit more directly because a lot of this stuff happened before the movie Sure. But I would say after the movie, this is when I had the 15 minutes of stand up in the beginning. And I had the 10 or whatever songs that I really, really loved doing and that also resonated with the audiences the most. So I had a pretty solid act at that point. And that would probably be the, the moment the, that couple of years there. And there were people showing up that, that were fans of the movie and stuff. Um, that would be the era of time where I felt the best about what I was doing. You know, I was going to uh, Montreal a lot and performing there at the comedy club. And then there were some, uh, I started doing these venues like Austin, Texas and San Francisco, where it would be just, a, I would work out the one room thing and we'd get like a hundred people to pay 15 bucks. And um, they would, wind up paying me as much for one show as I used to get for the entire week because I was able to draw the, you know, so, so that was a pretty exciting time. So let me ask you this. And then, uh, but just get, get, get technical craft bit for a second, which is yeah. you work in different size rooms. Um, first of all, different places altogether. So audiences are different, but let's talk about just the size of the room. Do you physically have to do things to, like, do you, do you got to play that room differently? Do you got to, you know, do the jokes land the same way? Do you like, how do you judge your vibe? Yeah. You, you're going to end up picking stuff. That's a little bit more broad based audiences. Uh, the, there's stuff that I would do on a late show on a Friday night that I would never even think of doing in front of a thousand people that spent 60 bucks to see the show because it's more experimental and, and it's sad too, right? Because that might be something that audience would have preferred, you know, but, uh, we try to play, I try to play it safe because I'm, I was always on this. It's like, I want more work. I never got to that, that point, like stand where it's like, Hey, if they all walk out on me right now, I'm 100% fine with that. I was never at that point. You know, I, I needed to make it, <laughs> make my, for every person that walked out of a stand hope show, he would gain more fans, you know, but I didn't have that. So I couldn't afford people walking out. So yeah, it, if it were a big, arena type crowd or you know thousand seater or whatever uh i would do the hits the best of the best the ones that i know are going to work every time and then also you don't have to see facial expressions and stuff too right, right. Uh, it's tough for me because i'm i'm not a guy who uh does a lot of big motions with my hands and when i was doing the stand-up portion 
but then again, not a lot of these guys are. I don't, I don't know that Ron White or Jim Gaffigan or these guys that do that have a lot of stuff that you see from the back row. I mean, mostly what you're hearing is, is their, their comedy through the mic, you know. And, you, uh, have, you have the advantage of uh, once you do, once you pull out that guitar and you do that, now that's a big advantage for a bigger room. Yeah, yeah, the songs worked great in those places because that's what that's what the places were built for, you know, is for concerts, you know. So let me ask you this question because you mentioned you had fans. Did you ever get after some of the some of the more uh, highlighted success? Did anybody ever ever do a show where people knew the bit or or singing along or you know, or, yeah. or sing, do the girlfriend song, you know, or do you know or do get any of that stuff? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, especially the Bob, the Bob and Tom show would play a lot of these songs. So when people showed up, they knew the songs. Yeah, the, the, some of the bigger ones were my, uh, I have one called the Bitch. Uh, the bitch song. Now I might be aging a little poorly at this time, but uh, it was it was designed to be like a reverse of, uh, you know, Billy Joel has the song Always a Woman. You know, so it's like she, she lies and cheats and steals, but she's always a woman to me. Mine is like, you know, she has this great life, but for some reason she's a bitch anyway. And uh but it's got a real catchy sort of melody and uh, yeah, people would sing along to that one a lot. She never was abused when she was younger And her father never up and ran away And even though her family gave her all the love she needs Somehow she's a bitch anyway let me stop you there because before we get on to the, the I want to finish with the with the with the second picture and what you're doing now and all that stuff. But there's a little tangent I heard there, and this I'm really curious about because you've been in it. Like I said, you're my age. You've been in it for thirty or twenty five years or whatever, thirty years. Um, you said it didn't age well. Yeah. The way the, the way the world is now. I mean, what do you think about this? What do you think about because I think my my belief and my opinion falls on that side of, you know, the Bill Mars, the Joe Rogans, the whoever, where it's like you gotta you can't censor this. That the whole point is to be uncomfortable. And now we're in a world where everybody's offended by everything. What do you think that's doing to your craft and how do you manage it? Well, I, I will say that I was never a guy in my act. I, I'd love watching people that, that were, but I, I was always making fun of myself. I was never really making fun of other people. I didn't, I didn't even do, you know, I wouldn't do a fat joke, for example, because there's going to be people in the audience that it's just like, yeah, sure. Everybody else is laughing, but now these people are like, well, I feel like shit about myself. And I came out here to have a good time. I don't like the idea that somebody's having a shitty night because of something I said, you know, I, I'm just that way. It might be cowardly or whatever, but uh, I, I felt like if, if I target myself, that's sort of safe. So when it gets to like uh, the, the bitch song, I, I guess, I guess that the word is a gender specific uh, derogatory term. You know, you can, you can overthink it. I mean, my friend Tig Nataro always used to love that song and she's uh, um somebody who is a comic first and then also part of a demographic of people that might you know have a have an issue with that you know but um i i don't think we thought so much about a lot of these things oh. but it, you know, i uh do you think now do you well, think about if you're you know uh 
a certain race, like like an Asian guy who's at a, at a at a comedy show, and you've just heard every time you go, it's always, oh yeah, we don't know how to drive, and we have poor uh, reproductive uh, abilities or whatever, you know, uh, or you know, we have small penises, whatever. Uh, it, it probably gets tiring to a point where you're like, all right, I think we can move on for that. And, and then slurs, I'm not down with. Uh, that that I'll cross the line on that. The, the guy who did that down. In, Austin, you know, is doing a, a bit and I think Joe Rogan talked about it and everything, but it's like, would you do that same slur? Uh, would you say the N word? You know, you'd have to ask yourself these questions. Why, why am I saying that one and not other ones, you know? And so I think it'll work itself out. I, I think if you watch Anthony Jesselnik, I don't know if you know Jesselnik, uh, he does a really good job of still being uh, edgy and being mean but for some reason, you don't get the feeling that he's targeting, uh, that he's punching down or, or targeting a specific group of people based on their race and stuff. So I don't know. I, I, I've, I I've, you, you know, if you go old school, even like a Rickles, I mean, he just oh, hit every, he just, he just, it was like he strafed the, you know, whoever was there, you know, so you might have felt bad for half a second, but the guy next to you is going to feel bad. Like he hit every race, everybody. So I think that might be the other way to go. Just hit everybody as hard as you possibly can. <laughs> And also, but there's that thing of punching down. And uh, if you look at Rickles or if you look at Stanhope, like back in the day, and he, he would say everything about everybody. But there was also a sense, whether it was true in real life or not, but you didn't feel like, like Rickles didn't exactly look like George Clooney up there. So it wasn't, you didn't get the feeling he was punching down. Exactly. You just felt like guys, this guy's a life and they're all low lives. You know, that's, that's the way he does it. And that's okay. You know, it's like if it were Chevy Chase doing it, it'd be a whole different situation, you know? And Stanhope would talk if 50% of what he was talking about was talking about terrible things about himself, you know? And, and so that made it sort of like, okay, so he's, he's putting himself down in there and then you can punch upward, you know, but yeah, I think it's the punching down thing. And sometimes it gets hard to see who's punching up and who's punching down, but just think I it's, like, I, like tranny like i used to say tranny all the time i it's in my songs it was a funny word to me and then you know at some point uh which never even dawned i mean it's it, somebody's like well it's a slur you know and and i i guess it is you know uh and so i i, I don't want to be a guy who uses slurs so i'm not going to say that I'll, I'll try to figure out some other way around it you know i i just I'm not in favor of us all censoring ourselves, but at the same time, I think people have a right to get pissed off. If they keep hearing jokes about themselves, they can, they can go on Twitter and say, Hey, fuck this guy, you know? So I I think as long as it's, it's the one art form, I mean, it's not the one art form, but it's the most uh, obvious art form of all of our art forms that should remain somewhat out there on the, on that edge and, and can't lose it. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, one thing, I mean, I remember seeing Doug Stanhope do stuff that would make myself and my friends just double over, like fall on the floor laughing for five minutes to where we couldn't. And there were other people like that. Sean Rouse, who's no longer with us, who was a Houston comic. It, it's so dark. It's so mean. And, and it was but it was so cathartic to hear somebody say something that you were thinking but that was back when it was like at a little punk club, you know, it was like, 
nobody had their camera on and nobody would have thought, well, we're going to eventually send this video to the very people, the groups of people that represent people that are oppressed or whatever. It's like uh, that there was never, um, it was never being broadcast outside of the 30 or 40 people in that room, you know, and it starts turning into like, it's like, well, well, should two people be able to talk to each other and, and make whatever jokes that they want, or should they always be acting as though everybody in the world is listening to them at that point? You know? So I think the cameras is probably the biggest uh, game changer. And that's why a lot of comics tried to fight it for a while. You know, it's like when I went to see Louis forum, there's, 15,000 people. And I think you had to like put your phone in a, a bag, unless I'm mixing it up with a different show, but yeah, or you had to turn it off or there was some, and of course, cause you want that feeling of being able to say whatever you want. You don't want to have somebody take what you said out of context and right. then put it on. You now. So they I should, have a feeling. They should I hope create that people a, a pay-per-view uh, sort of, you know, like the red tube, you know, this, this is where we, the comics go where they can do whatever the fuck they want. All right. So if you don't want to go in there, don't go in. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, Yeah. You got to keep things. Well, when you watch like Mr. Show, I thought it was such a fantastic show, you know, Bob Odenkirk and stuff like that. And the uh, yeah, the content on there was just anything goes. And uh, I really like this new show. I, I think you should leave. Uh, Tim Robinson, it's on Netflix. That's a really great sketch show. And uh, I, I think, uh, well, look, look at it this way. I don't think that even in 1999, when we talked about Anthony Clark being the sitcom star, he wasn't out there going and saying the N-word and stuff like that. Being right. So there really never was a time that you could just go on and say all that stuff. But you're right, in a comedy club, you should be able to say whatever you want. And if you're not a fan of that comic, then you don't go. That's kind of what the Andrew Dice Clay thing was all about, you know? It's like, um, but yeah, I think the problem is people are videotaping it and putting it out to people. Yeah. And then it's easy to be, it's easy to be anonymously, anonymously offended now where before you, you, you know, you don't have to show your face. All right. So for the last few minutes, I just want to get, I want to move ahead. So you you have that great film, kills at slam dance and gets on Netflix and, and creates a new fan base for you're out there working. At what point did the idea to do another one come? And then that second one, now that's a, there's some money behind that. And you got an Oscar winner and JK Simmons coming in. And now Sarah Silverman is going to do your movie. And, you know, how did that all start? And, um, and, you know, it wasn't a credit card. I can't imagine that did it. No, no, it was a, it was a, I was going to say it's a calling card. Like the first movie, was our rite of passage and now if i went to sarah she already was a fan of the first movie and it's like hey we've we've got something that you could do and shoot it in one day it'll be great and then she's like sure there's no friends no money no love life not even the respect of his peers it's over fogelberg like a loser's loser or a loser who could make a loser feel like a hero guys i'm right here Right? Guys, I'm right here. I think is this place where everybody feels like they're just like sleeping their way to the top. And I always felt like I'm just like masturbating my way to the bottom for whatever reason. <laughs> because she had seen the first movie. And then likewise, J.K. Simmons, um, he was sent the script and he was uh, sort of half into it. Um, and Mike Judge, who became a friend of mine because he liked the movie and we started hanging out and uh, 
he, he said, Hey, if there's anything I can do to help you guys get a second movie going, that's all right. And I'm usually pretty bad about calling in favors like that. But since he offered, I was like, well, you did a movie with JK Simmons and uh, JK Simmons is just needs that little extra push over the cliff. So Mike judge sent him a really nice letter saying, Hey, you got to watch the first movie. And uh, I think this is going to be a good thing for you. You know, not a good thing for, Simmons's career but he also is a guy who likes to do independent films and um god bless that guy man he uh he knocked it out of the park and just was so professional all the lines were all made it, it was really interesting to watch an actor really really in command in their their craft because I would hear him say things like when we were shooting it's like oh, okay so all right, so we're moving on the close-up. Okay, this is when the acting comes out, you know? And so he'd say little things like that. And also uh, Greg, the director would say like, uh, this line's not working, can, can you say a different line? And then he would just do the whole take with the new line just built in there. It was, it was just unbelievably efficient. Spent most of his time in his trailer, but very polite, friendly to everybody. I mean, that that was an experience. He didn't, he wasn't an Academy Award winner when we did the movie, he won it after. It was very, it, I joke that I could see him when his name gets called to get the Academy Award. It's like, damn, why did I do that guy's dumb movie? But uh, anyway, <laughs> so let, me ask you, winner now. let me ask you this question. When you're working with, uh, with an actor of that caliber, or, you know, this is kind of a first, I would think for you at this point where it's like, all right, so are you, are you, uh, intimidated in those scenes at all are you learning are you watching are you is it like playing hockey with Gretzky where you just putting the puck on your stick like it's just easier what how's it work you know what it'd be like playing hockey with Gretzky but you're a, a, a <laughs> I'm trying to think of it I'm gonna give up on the analogy but uh I, I'm gonna say that I was in my comfort zone because I wrote it I was recreating stories of myself and I knew there was one thing that I can do acting wise and that's be myself and retell these stories. I was in the elevator recently and there were a couple of girls there and some other people and when I got to my floor, I didn't know if I was supposed to go right or left, but I just wanted to get out of there. So I thought, well, I'm just going to go left and then deal with it later. So I get to my floor and I was like, you guys, uh, well, you guys have a good one or whatever. And then I went out and I went left, but there's just a wall right here. And I was like, gosh. But I didn't think they could see, so I thought, well, maybe what I'll do, I'm just going to kind of like stand here and hide up against the wall just for a second and wait for the doors to close so that way they don't know. So I'm just kind of standing here hiding against the wall, waiting, and the doors aren't closing for the longest time. But while I was standing there, I looked across here and there's this giant mirror. And I could see them and they're staring at me and I'm just standing here hiding up against this wall. I didn't know what to say. I was like, uh, oh, hey. And then the doors closed right at that moment. So that's the last thing anybody saw. And I was like, oh, man. I did. It wasn't like I was cast in a, in a new Scorsese movie and your scene's going to be with J.A. Simmons. I would have been terrified. But this was sort of my turf. So I didn't feel um, uncomfortable about it. You know, I, I, I just was like, this is awesome that we have such a great actor here. Uh, and there's other great actors in there. Clifton Collins Jr. is in there. And um, and then so many great comics. Doug Stanhope knocks it out of the park in that one. Um, but yeah, and 
you know, Tig and Jim Jeffries, Nikki Glazer. There's so many. I, I Once I start naming a couple, I want to make sure I'm naming all of them because then I feel like I'm leaving people out. But yeah, and Sarah. But um, yeah, the, the J.K. Simmons thing was uh, I, I wasn't intimidated. And, and it's <laughs> I'm still trying to think of the analogy. Be like playing with Gretzky if you're at your own house and uh, he just all your food or something like that. You know, I don't know. But uh, and but no yeah jk simmons was just uh it was generous for him to do it and he was professional i mean i have friends i'm not going to mention any names but i have friends that were in both of the movies that literally complained about you know how early we had to start and all this stuff. I'm like, <laughs> winner who's not making any more money than the rest of you and he's fine with it so i don't understand why you're you know but that's the way things are right so the first one is 150 grand, whatever, uh, uh, 21 days. What is this one? This is like studio stuff now, right? Okay. So the process was we did, we, we had the script. Uh, we used a lot of the jokes that we didn't use for the first one because they didn't fit for whatever reason. But uh, by, by early 2014, we were doing readings. Uh, we called up some producers that, that we had met along the way and a, a studio called Whitewater Films liked the first movie a lot and agreed to to do it so it's a studio movie and uh budget I think was somewhere around 675 grand because that was some kind of a sweet spot where if you go over there then you have to pay more for all the union people or whatever it is but that that's sort of a magic number in the business apparently and um so there we were so it it was exciting again, but there was a lot of pressure this time around because we were using other people's money. There were yeah. investors, uh, foreign investors, investors that wound up becoming good friends of mine, you know, that, that I wouldn't have met otherwise, you know, that, that were just people who were pretty wealthy, who didn't necessarily expect that they were going to make a lot of money off of this, but they, they liked dabbling in the independent film scene because, you never know when you're going to hit a Juno or something like that. And, but, but they like going to the screenings and uh, they like being a part of the film. Let me ask you this question. This is just because I'm a, uh, I'm a filmmaker trying to do the same things you've been doing. And I've been doing it forever, just out of my own pocket, grabbing this angel, that angel. You said you met them along the way. How, how do you make those connections to those kinds of investing, those kinds of angels that are out there? I met them through Whitewater Films. Whitewater Films were the ones that did all the cold calling to people. Okay. Uh, I only met them because they were involved in the movie. Yeah, believe me, our paths <laughs> would definitely cross. Like, how do uh, I find you? Yeah, no I, no, I think you'd have to go through a studio, an independent film studio that their part of their job is raising money for this very thing. And that that's not me. But um yeah, I, there's some people that have dedicated their life to that. But but I will say these people are out there. There's people uh, in, in industries, you know, like oil industries or whatever, where they're just making so much money that the idea of throwing a half a million dollars or, or whatever. In, the, in our case, I think we probably had about and I'm, I might be talking too much about the numbers to make people feel comfortable. But I think there were probably about five investors that, that covered that that six seventy five thousand and um and how how long was that shoot? How long did you shoot for that one? What's that? How long was that shoot? Oh, that was about the same, about three weeks, and the pickups. Um, and uh, the process was a lot different, though, because I, when we wanted to make changes, for example, we couldn't just open Greg's laptop and say, "Okay, this part's not working." 
it, it, it literally the studio would be like, all right, you can change that part. It's going to cost a thousand dollars just to open up the, the file, you know, because you wow. have an editor and a system editor and there's all kinds of union regulations and all this. You have to have the studio time and everything. So it was a, a whole different animal. Whereas I was like, we just showed it to 30 people and this bit consistently does not work. We want to cut it out. And they're like, you know, it's going to add to the budget, you know? So there was a lot of, a lot of fights that happened like with that uh, because Greg and I were used to doing things our way. And this was a whole different method. Uh, but, uh, did you uh, uh, use a different editor or did you back to great? Uh, and it's been six years and it, it, but he, he edited the movie Miller's Crossing from uh, okay. the Thorn Brothers. Uh, he's very capable, and I, it kills me that I, it's been—I guess it's been seven years now, so I can't remember. You know, I've had spent hours with the guy. I, but anyway, you can look him up that way. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was great. Um, but yeah, it was a whole different situation. It was a very professional situation. Greg wanted to do it, uh, do the editing himself, but the studio wasn't that much in favor of that we, we tried to get carol kravitz but she was on another project um also greg's mom wound up getting very sick she she eventually recovered which is great but uh that that messed up some of uh greg's input as if sure, sure. And, uh, but uh i think what we ended up with was was a movie that was a little darker a little bit more desperate you know that watching a 38 year old guy going through hard times is a little easier than watching a 45 year old guy because then it starts getting to like all right this guy there's not a lot of hope for this guy there was no subplot with a girl that i wind up with or whatever you just sort of get this feeling this is uh hey these are my stories take them or leave them and uh i don't think the the movie is everybody's cup of tea for that very reason well let me tell let me stop you right there because that's exactly why i loved it because there is okay. Plenty of plenty of guys like me, like you, were like, oh, okay, there you go. Thank you. Thank you for that, because that's it. And Doug Stanhope said the exact same thing. He, he didn't like the first movie as much, but he loved uh, the second movie. And not just because he was in it, as a matter of fact, I think he kind of, when he saw his bit, you know, which I think is so funny. But, um, but to what you said, you know what, when, when Spinal Tap, because again, we're about the same age. When I saw Spinal Tap, I laughed my ass off. There were guys that I knew that were uh, at that time older guys, like 40 year old guys that were musicians that had failed and they couldn't stand it. They're just like, ah, oh, man, we had the same thing you know, happen when we showed up to the record store and then nobody showed up. Why are we watching this? You know, this is just like a trip trip down self-esteem lane. This is and they didn't like it, you know, and uh, it's really funny. The difference between what you laugh at and what tragedy versus comedy. Right. Yeah. Well, that was it. That was a, I loved it. That was one of them. That was a fantastic picture. And that's what led me to you. So I'm, I'm real glad and it helped me dive deeper into going back and looking at all the, uh, all the other stuff. And then it reminded me, oh, I've seen this guy forever. I just never put the two together. Your stuff is fantastic. So last little bit before I wrap up the stuff you're doing now, some of the online stuff, the YouTube, yeah. stuff, the Patreon stuff. Um, like when you came on, you got the highway man. Yeah. I imagine that came out during the pandemic that must've started. Yeah. So, but, but also, I mean, I was hitting 50, so I'm like, well, I think it's time for me to start thinking about, do I want to uh, wake up and go to the airport and spend a day in O'Hare and uh, spend a week in uh, South Bend, Indiana, no offense to South Bend. Indiana. <laughs> 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 
didn't pick them out for any specific reason, but it's just, uh, you know, I started trying to think, well, what can I do that doesn't involve all of this? Cause it's a little bit of a young man's game. It's not like the offers were coming in like they used to. So, um, I had a, I had a kitchen video that I made 10 years ago that went viral right. and Henry's kitchen and I'm making chili for one. And, uh, <laughs> That, that gave me a whole uh, fan base online. So I've been making those kitchen videos for years and I put them on Patreon. Patreon is amazing. You can literally, you talked about, uh, we talked about how we can keep comedy alive and keep people doing what they want to do and, and saying what they want to say. You can do it with Patreon. You know, it's like you just have 200 people listening to whatever it is you are, you do, and then they're uh, financing it. And then that's your audience. And, you know, if anybody's offended by it, then they can go off and do something else, you know? So because of Patreon, I've been able to make a living on not only that web series, but I started a new one, the highway man, which my, my wife actually one time texted me. She goes, I got your new, uh, your new uh, web series. It's called the highway man. And then I just uh, all of a sudden thought about just how great it would be to, to have a show kind of like all those shows that we grew up with the $6 million man and uh, the Hulk and all that stuff. But with a guy like me, really not good at anything, you know, and I see people with their cars broken down and it's like, I don't really know how to deal with cars and my cell phone doesn't really work, but I hope you, you know, good luck with it, you know, but he wants to be that kind of a loner hero who goes on to the next town. And so I've built that whole thing and it's the highway man. Helping people all across the land I love you, Highwayman It's been an extremely low scale. I think we, you know, on Patreon, there's like 200 people and they average about $5 for every video that we do. And we're trying to make content on a real shoestring there. I try to give all the actors hundred bucks, you know, and so it's usually just me and one other actor because that's all we can afford. And so what, are you, so, but I, what are you out there yeah. shooting on? What are you, what are you, what are you shooting? Uh, on? I used to shoot, I, I used to hire a DP for 300 bucks and then we would shoot two episodes in one day. And then he had a beautiful, uh, uh, I think he had a pocket, uh, black magic pocket. Unbelievable. Um, but I couldn't afford them anymore. And I finally was just like, you know what? I'm just going to use my camera. So I have a Canon uh, 80D. Okay. It's not full. It's a crop sensor. and uh, But I have a cool film uh, effect that I put over the whole thing, like a film look. Uh, I was uh, looking at the, uh, aside from the, when I was looking at the kitchen ones, well, are, are you doing that on like uh, VHS or eight, or eight millimeter? I mean, some of that. The flip cam. Do you remember the flip cameras that came out in like 2008 or nine? That's and I still on that because it's like, there's a certain magic with that. I think it's 720. I think yeah. it's 720 P or whatever. And yeah, I, I don't think you can do those types of videos in any other uh, format. You know, it's gotta be that camera. It just looks so amateur. And so I do that very intentionally. I edit on iMovie because you're kind of limited in terms of the cutting and it all comes out very, you know, and I use all their built-in themes and stuff. And again, but yeah. I want to point out for people who watch that one, the, the kitchen stuff, what's so brilliant about that one that you do it a little in the high women too, but still the edits, you know, where you're, 
again, it's these subtle layer things where you just, you're cutting a guy's, his line off before you <laughs> like the guys clearly doesn't know how to edit. So it's like these awful transitions. It's so funny, man. Some of that stuff is yeah. When you watch the real ones, I, right. I love the real ones because it's like, it's just like, boom, you're looking at the guy and he's staring there and it's like for about a minute. And then it's like, hi, welcome to Henry's kitchen, you know? And then, and then sometimes it'll cut off right in the middle of a thing, you know? Um, yeah. And, and for people watching, it's all on YouTube. You know, there's, there's like 50 episodes of this on YouTube, just put in Henry's kitchen. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say that I'm, I'm doing the same thing I was doing with my songs I'm trying to be the bad songwriter guy. Now I'm just trying to be the bad, you know, amateur cook guy, you know, and that's, that's the theme throughout all of it. I, I love being the guy who tries to do what everybody else is doing, but I just fail at it. And, uh, well, it's you know, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, I'm going to let you go here in a second, but the last thing uh, is there like, what do you, you've transitioned through so many different kinds of things, right? through your career you, you 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 had one angle as a kid you started going in one direction it took you to another thing that and it all just sort of it's interesting when we look back at our lives it almost looks like well of course that's how it was going to go look at look at how but at the time you don't see all those turns so where you're at now um what are the things you want to do like what what would be the cool thing to do man you want to go back and do another film do you want to I know, I know you don't want to go hit the road anymore, but I mean, what kind of stuff do you want to do? That's a question that we all have to ask ourselves, like at our age, stuff like that too, because you start running out of stuff and you're like, I got to do something. I'm going to be around. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. It, it, uh, Greg and I are working on another screenplay for a third film. Cool. So we're going to be well. The first one lost our own money. The second one lost our investors' money. So do you want in? <laughs> but uh so i don't know i mean but greg has a way of making these things happen so, so, so maybe we'll be able to get it on you know one of these platforms or you know films are becoming easier to make technologically i've got more experience with it so i'd like to make another independent film um i i'd like to run my own series um i'd love to do more acting work but again it's got to be that very specific type of thing because i uh, it's, it's something that I don't feel particularly, uh, competitive with because unless some, well, I, the biggest gig that I've done was, uh, HBO Silicon Valley, which was Mike judge who again was a fan of the, the, uh, movies and also the cooking video, but they gave me a ponytail and he basically just said, can you just do your kitchen guy? They basically do that. And I was like, yeah, that I can do, but I was terrified on there. You know, it's like there's 50 people with walkie talkies and there's green screens and there's famous people. And it's like, I was terrified of screwing up. So I'd love to do more of that work, but it has to be a very type specific type of thing. But um, I'll tell you, you should, you, you are built for uh, the Hulu uh, Amazon net Netflix series type thing. If you could get 13 episodes of a, you know, 26 minute, you know, thing. Somebody, yeah. Somebody's got to pick up a character, one of those characters, those sort of near dwell type characters that you do. Yeah, I mean, my challenge has always been in this business uh, that I've uh, I've had to do it myself because I never really 
seem to get calls from the mainstream part of the business, but uh, I'm in good company. You know, I mean, it's Doug Stanhope had that too. I mean, he was never getting on tonight show and he was never going to be the Anthony Clark model or anything, but the internet came around and boy, he, he built up a, an entire thing. Right. And uh, so I, uh, I realized whatever I do, it's going to be, it's going to start as a DIY thing, but yeah, it, it would not be bad at some point to get picked up, you know, the way Rogan got picked up by Spotify or whatever. Yeah. It's, it wouldn't be bad if at one point, one of the big, uh, the big boys could pick me up and, okay. and help. A lot. That guy should have, he should have you on man. Rogan should be giving you a call. He's got so many comics on there. Your stuff is so, so different. There's a guy who should give you a call. <laughs> cross paths much he was in houston a little bit but but i didn't really know him that well but um but yeah i after a while it's a little exhausting having to do everything yourself and it wouldn't be a little help (laughs) well all the you know my my heart goes out to you you're in the same we're in you're in a better position than me but we're in a similar boat where it's if you're going to do it you're going to have to you're going to have to turn the camera on yourself and make it happen. But you, everything you've done so far, uh, incredible stuff, super talented. I was watching more of it this morning, just laughing my ass off, just great stuff. And uh, I super appreciate you. Uh, the age thing and also the back East thing, you know, we share a lot of commonality there, you know, I like what you do too. I was watching the podcast and I like the cool, uh, you had, it looked like you had two camera angles in your last one that I was, and, and you have great, photography and like your intro video and stuff that's good looking stuff you know good well i appreciate it and uh and like i said you know uh uh, i i'm fascinated i'm always fascinated with like i loved watching all the actors on actors actor studio i like to hear the mechanics of it because having been an actor for 30 years and studied and and done everything from whatever shakespeare to miller to all that stuff i love to hear how other artists do that musicians people and especially comedians and musicians who i don't get to talk to enough because it's so alien to me you know it's completely different uh discipline so it's fascinating to see the commonalities with the things that i do and things that they do and it's like all right here's where it diverges here's where it goes together is that shit fascinates me so i could watch that all day so when that pandemic hit it was like i'm gonna do one of these i want to talk to some of these people and so i really appreciate uh anybody glad you did i mean that's that's the challenge that was put in front of all of us but it's also uh the tools were there you know and that's the most exciting that's that you're absolutely right and and we can do it you know the 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 technology and the price point is at a place where you can create these things yourself and 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 get it out there so all the best to you man Uh, i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today absolutely russ thanks for having me 